and welcome to the Historical Paranormal Podcast. I'm your host, Krista, and I have been gone for about three weeks. So thanks everyone who is listening to this now, thinking that maybe I have fallen off the edge of the earth. Um, My career really ramps up around the holidays to like a fever pitch. So um, I have not been as consistent with the shows. Um, And that's just because I'm super busy. But I will probably get a lot more consistent with those and the side notes more towards January, February. Um, However, I have also been sick, so that's the other side of things. When you work with the public, you get sick sometimes. So if I seem like my voice is wavering or if I am uh, coughing and I forget to edit it out, that's why. I got a little sick. And it wasn't like usually a cold. Those will put me out for the count. Like I will just be sick in bed. I don't want to do anything. I don't want to be around. I have very, very low tolerance for things when I have a cold. But I'm thinking maybe this was allergies because I just did not feel bad. I was pretty energetic. Um, I just didn't have a voice. Actually, that's not true. I had like this bluesy, cool voice that was neat, and I can't say that I didn't enjoy it. But for all intents and purposes, I was mostly sick. So that was why I really wasn't around. Um, In any case, this story, I'd heard it a while back. I mean, it's not like it hasn't been covered by other podcasts, but just not enough, I guess, to where I would be like, ugh, it's been done to death, you know? Um, But this one was really, I mean, it's it's pretty scary. Um, I heard it when my husband would, he used to work really late nights. I heard it late at night. And I heard it like on a Friday or Saturday night. (laughs) The wind was really crazy outside. Um, Just all kinds of crazy stuff. So it was like the perfect storm to hear a scary story. And as much as I love those stories, I do not like being actually scared. But I definitely was with this one. Probably because a lot of it has to do with, I guess, the fear of being watched. And that's one of my bigger ones. I will say I don't really have a lot of them, but that and snakes are two of my my bigger fears. And for good reason, because a lot of the scary stories, a lot of the murder stories that we hear start with that. They were being watched for weeks ahead of time. There was an occasion at one point where my phone got stolen, and when I talked to people around who should have looked and seen this, but you know, we miss things, um, they had said, well, they must have been watching you because you were gone maybe 40, maybe 50 seconds, like not even a minute. I was gone really quickly, but it was very busy. So I'm wondering if that's what it was. that <laughs> They just were watching me the whole time. And I remember being so creeped out about that. And a, a couple times I've had friends with items that were stolen out of their car. Um, and again, the police were saying they were watching you. They saw what you left in your car because they, it was a clean car. There's really not any reason to think that maybe she was hiding something, but, um, she ended up, she had her laptop in there and she had tried to cover it with a coat, but it didn't work out. So in any case, that is something like, there's definitely a reason for that fear. And, um, it's this particular one, um, really got to me like this one because my friend, when she lived in an apartment on the second floor of a two story complex, she swore up and down that there was somebody in her attic, that she felt as though 
um, somebody not necessarily was watching her, but was just living in there. And I kept telling her, call the apartment complex. My God, that is huge. That is a problem. You don't know what's, what could happen because I had heard this story and I was like, seriously though, you're, you're going to die. Like you need to call. But she never really thought it was that big of a deal. And I don't know if it's because she was fairly able to take care of herself. Um, if it were to come to a situation like that, or if it was just because she didn't want to make too much of a bother, I have no idea, but she ended up moving out of the complex and I just really never got any closure from her as far as like what that was. But she did have a friend who had a similar situation. And in that case, the girl, like a normal human, called her apartment complex and said, something's up. I keep hearing these voices or this, um, one particular voice and I keep hearing sounds above, like in my, where the crawl space or the attic would be. I guess crawl space is like a, an under the house type thing, but she kept hearing noises in her attic. So they went to go check it out. And indeed there was a homeless person who was living in her attic above her apartment. And if you lived in apartments then you're like, I've never noticed an attic. I remember looking around my house after hearing this and I was like, there's definitely an attic. Actually there is. So, um, look around <laughs> and see if you can find it. But she definitely had a homeless man living in there. Um, he had vacated after they checked, but obviously she moved apartments because that is just egregious to have that happen. I mean, I don't think he could see her. I don't remember that being part of the story, but man, what if he could, what if he was one of the people that like broke through, created a little hole where they could see and watch you. Ugh, that is scary. Which brings me to our topic this week, and that is the Villisca Axe Murders. So, Villisca, Iowa, if you're like, I've never heard of that, maybe you've heard of it because of the story. Um, you are in the majority, actually. A lot of people hadn't heard of it. I had not heard of it until I, I heard this, this um, horrifying story, to be honest. Um, but in 1912, where our story takes place... It was kind of a booming place. It was 54 years into being a settled farming community. D.N. Smith of Chicago actually began the town, naming it for a word meaning a beautiful place in the native language of the tribes who inhabited the land before they did. We won't get into how they inhabited that land after. Who knows? An armory, actually, that they had um, built back then still stands today. It was built in 1912. And the town was booming also from a train depot that it attracted Travelers and businesses. One of the businesses flourishing in Villisca at the time was the Moore Implement Company. This was a franchise of the John Deere Company owned by Josiah Moore. It was hardly the only hardware store in operation. I mean, Villisca was a booming town, so there definitely would have been at least um, three or four in the area. Now, it, since it wasn't the only one, it did have a lot of competition, but it was intense competition with one store in particular, and that was the Jones store owned by Frank Fernando Jones. He was a state senator and a banker. A good boss is usually happy to see their employees blooming under their management. They might think that they had helped someone along their journey, but Frank did not. 43-year-old Josiah was a former employee of Frank's who'd saved enough money to open his own business albeit in direct competition with his former boss. This was a thorn in Frank's 
Frankside. And he was not afraid to let people know. In fact, he let the whole town know how upset he was about that. But it wasn't only business matters that made Frank despise Joe. The gossip in the town also held that Josiah was having an affair with Frank's daughter-in-law, Donna Jones. Josiah was also married. His wife, Sarah Montgomery Moore, was an ardent churchgoer, actively organizing the children's programs at the Villisca Presbyterian Church, which still stands today. They'd had four children together, Herman, age 11, Catherine, age 10, Boyd, age 7, and Paul, age 5. On June 9th, Sarah had organized a Children's Day service at the church where the kids performed speeches and little biblical skits. The service ended late and was then followed by a social for the adults and kids alike to celebrate the end of the school year. Around 9.30 that night, the Moore family left the church, and with them were 12-year-old Lena and 8-year-old Ina Stillinger, who were having a sleepover at the Moors that night. That was the last anyone saw them alive. On June 10th, Mary Peckham had started her day early. While she was getting her breakfast ready, she noticed that her next-door neighbors, the Moors, House was still quiet. There was none of the hustle and bustle a home with four kids would have at seven in the morning, summer or no summer. After going out of the house and seeing that the horses and chickens hadn't been fed and were still in the barn, she decided to knock on the door. Walking up the porch steps, she notices how quiet things are. The silence as she walked up was deafening, really. After repeated knocks generated no response, she decided to call Josiah's brother, who had a key to the house. Ross Moore, a pharmacist, came over immediately. As he unlocked the door, he called out to his brother and his sister-in-law, who he was sure were just asleep or you know some other totally innocent thing. But after hearing no response again, he walked into the first floor bedroom. There he found Lena and Ina Stillinger. Their heads were covered with clothing, but there was a bloody scene around them, so much so that it pulled around the bed and covered the headboard. Ross immediately ran out of the house and called Josiah's hardware store. He told Ed Sully, an employee there, to alert Marshall or Hank Horton because something terrible had happened. Upon arriving at 8.30 a.m. to the house, Hank investigated the rest of the home. He came out and told Ross that there was just someone murdered in every single bed. Each of the bodies had been covered with sheets or some sort of clothing from their own dressers. And there was another odd thing about each room. Every room that had a mirror, a sheet or some other sort of cloth covered them. Window shades were closed, which does make sense to me. Of course, you would close the window shades if you're about to do something that awful and you don't want people to see how, if they were happening to look outside of the window. Um, there are also oil lamps with their chimneys removed, quote, as LizzieAndrewBorden.com describes it, which I got a lot of this information from. Um, the oil lamps were placed through several rooms in the house. When the marshal got to the kitchen, he found a four-pound slab of bacon had been placed against the side of the wall 
next to the family's own axe. That had ended up being what they were murdered with. And if you'll remember in the stories like that, um, that we covered in the past, the servant girl annihilator and the mulatto murders, all of them had been murdered with their own axe or the family's own axe. And there's several other axe murders across the country that had that same thing. And simply because that's what was outside. That was the easiest murder weapon that didn't make a lot of noise outside the house like a gun would. Guns were still not easy to come by necessarily back then. And it still would have been trackable. So the axe was the easiest one, although definitely the most bloody. But they found that kind of propped against the wall. And then on top of that, in the kitchen, there was an uneaten plate of food and a bowl filled with bloody water, presumably where the killer had washed his hands. At this time in 1912, especially in Iowa, there wasn't a standard crime scene protocol to follow. In fact, after the bodies were found, the townspeople didn't just stand outside the murder house. A few hundred of them actually went in and walked around the rooms. Thus, the crime scene was so compromised that police had no fingerprints, no evidence, and no pictures of the crime scene. The closest thing they had to a clue was Lena Stillinger. Her nightgown, when they found her, had been pushed up around her waist, which of course made them feel as though she had been sexually assaulted. After doing an autopsy, it was determined that she had not been assaulted, but that she had tried to fight off her attacker. There were defensive wounds on her hands and on one of her knees, which made me think that maybe she was trying to escape or definitely to fight him off. Even though there were not a lot of clues to go off, there were definitely suspects. A detective Wilkerson of the Burns Detective Agency posited that Frank Fernando Jones, Josiah's former boss, overcome with jealousy and anger, hired a man to kill the entire Moore family. He made his case through several town hall meetings, and it resulted in the accused hitman being arrested. That man, William Blackie Mansfield, was arrested in 1916. But after presenting a pretty believable alibi, he was acquitted. There were several eyewitnesses, though, that placed Mansfield with F.F. Jones right before the murders. But... In any case, he was absolutely acquitted due to that alibi. And this, by the way, was all enough to ruin Jones's political career. He lost his bid for re-election and ended up suing Detective Wilkerson for a slander, or for slander, a case he lost, by the way, dramatically. The townspeople still distrusted him after this heinous crime and made sure that he knew it. He later said that his decision to sue was the worst mistake of his life. Imagine that. I mean, it's not like he wasn't warned. His own attorney told him not to do it. But he did anyway and, of course, regretted it for the rest of his life. He did keep his business, though, and even served on the Iowa Board of Education. In 1940, after retiring, he wrote Reminiscences of Events in the Life of F.F. Jones. The book did not make the bestsellers list. Surprise. So... He died at his home in Velisco one year later. I actually would like to get my hands on a copy of this book just to kind of peruse it and see what reminiscences of events in the life of F.F. Jones he felt were important enough to add to a book. 
I mean, he did accomplish a lot. He was a state senator. He was a wealthy businessman. He served on the Board of Education. I'm sure he had something to say, but I'd like to hear it in his own words or at least read it. It would be interesting to see that. The other suspect was Reverend George Kelly. Now, this one, this one's hard to think like, oh, maybe he didn't do it. I don't know. His behavior does not exactly exonerate him. So let's see who he is. 34-year-old Lynn George Jacqueline Kelly was a traveling preacher. He'd arrived in Villisca the morning of the children's service and watched a performance that the Stillinger girls had put on. After this, he retired back to his camp early. The next morning at 5 a.m., he boarded the westbound number 5 train out of Villisca and told fellow travelers that there were eight dead souls back in Villisca, butchered in their beds while they slept. The bodies actually had not been discovered until 8 a.m., some three hours later. About two weeks after that, Reverend Kelly comes back to Villisca, although this time, this time he was posed as an investigator. He has said he had wanted to tour the crime scene for clues because he was an investigator from another state. Now, this got the attention of the authorities. And by the way, at this time, Villisca didn't have a police department, just state authorities, similar to New Braunfels and the murder of Emma Velker. Uh, they called state authorities or the state sheriff, but they did not. Maybe not state sheriff was the right thing. I'll fix that. But, um, but they did not have a local police department to call. So that's why there's like a marshal that they call and then the state authorities as well. Now, just to give you a little background on who George Kelly was, his grandfather and his father were both ministers in England. And he'd suffered a mental episode or a breakdown in his early adolescence. He really didn't recover fully from it after that. And he decided not to continue uh, being a preacher in England. And in 1904, he moved with his wife to America. But even when he moved there, even after his marriage, he was repeatedly in trouble for being a window peeper, as they called him, just a peeping Tom and had sent obscene material to random women in the mail. And I've seen several sites claim that he was a probable pedophile as well, but I didn't really see anything concrete on that. Um, his mental issues were also known in other cities, and he'd even spent time in a mental institution. He was indicted in 1917 for the Stillinger murders. And while in jail, he was heavily interrogated. Because honestly... None of this makes it seem like he didn't do it. Like, his past was already something. He had posed as an investigator. Now, that could have just been, like, just this terrible curiosity. But, dude, curiosity killed the cat. So maybe just watch yourself on that, you know? Um, he did bring quite a bit of um, attention his way. Unwanted attention, I guess. Now, like I said, he was indicted in 1917, and on August 31st of 1917, he signed a confession stating that God had spoken to him, telling him to suffer the children to come unto me. Of course, at the trial, he recanted this confession, and while the jury was deadlocked 11 to 1, they reached a vote of acquittal. And I'm imagining like a 12 angry men type scenario. And if you haven't seen that film, it stars Henry Fonda, as a normal dude who was called up to jury duty, got into the jury for a murder trial, and he basically held up the jury. I mean, everybody wanted to blame this kid, and I believe this this kid was like an immigrant or from an immigrant family, something like that, but they wanted to blame him for this, for a murder. 
And he goes on and on through the evidence presented, takes his job as a juror very seriously, which we all should, especially for a murder trial, but took the job very seriously. And he kept on with these people, kept arguing with them and saying, it's not that we're saying he's innocent. What we're saying is that there is a shadow of a doubt. I mean, there's definitely a possibility that he didn't do it. And the only way we can say he's guilty is if there's without a shadow of a doubt, um, a reason and proof that he did it. And there was just too much to say that he may not have. So in the end, one guy stood against 11 other jurors who wanted to convict this boy um, and helped them change their mind. So he ended up getting acquitted because of that. So that is the reference I'm making there to the 12 angry men. Anyway, total <laughs> leap off of that. But nevertheless, whether it was William Blackie Mansfield or whether it was George Kelly, the murder they felt, the investigators felt, went down like this. The Moore family attic wasn't on top of their house. It was next to it. And the door of the attic opened up to the side of the room that Josiah slept on. The most likely scenario is that the killer hid in the attic, waiting until the family came home and went to sleep. In the attic, they found a chair and a stool, and both of them had cigarettes, cigarette butts next to them. Which brings me to my theory. There were two of them. Yeah, that's right. I JFK'd this theory. I think this was the work of two traveling serial killers. And I'm supported in this by cases of similar murders happening in Colorado Springs, Colorado, Monmouth, Illinois, Paolo, Kansas, and Ellsworth, Kansas. I feel as though there were two of them because there were axe strikes in the ceiling. When they found the bodies of the children and of Josiah and Sarah, they also found the axe strikes. So they had been killed with the blunt end of the axe, and then the sharp end was embedded into the ceiling once or twice or more because each of them were actually killed. Each of the, the family members had 20 or 30 strikes to the head, so they were unrecognizable. Um, but because it was the blunt end. So the reason why I say the axe strikes is that if there were only one guy and he killed Joe first, Sarah would have heard it and woken up and she would have had the defensive wounds on her like the ones that were found on Lena Stillinger. Other members of the family hearing this would have gotten up too and by the shreds of evidence that were known, none of them except Lena did. And she probably only did that because her sister was right next to her in that bed. And she probably heard her being killed. There was a man named Henry Lee Moore that was convicted of murdering his mother and grandmother for insurance money in Columbia, Missouri. When an investigator at the Justice Department, later known as the FBI, well trivia, uh, went over the crime scene, an axe had been placed against the wall, the murder weapon had been placed against the wall, and a bowl had been set out for him to wash his hands, which, of course, was then discovered by the police. And while this definitely sounds bad, it's unlikely that a serial killer, killing families along a railroad, would end his spree by killing his own family for insurance money, which provided an ironclad motive for the police to incriminate him with. In any case, the murder is unsolved to this day. However, it did inspire some changes to crime scene investigation and made the state realize that it needed a department of crime scene investigation, which was then instated. 
These murders and the ones in other states in the Midwest and Texas are all alike in many ways. Seemingly random train line murders. So the train depot that Velisca was so proud of for bringing a lot of bounty and growth to their community also brought a murderer. And it's a murder that still haunts Velisca to this day. There's a documentary on Netflix by Kelly and Tammy Rundle called Velisca, Living with a Mystery, that you can watch about this. And by all accounts, it's pretty accurate. I have not seen it just yet, but I'm about to watch it. So uh, if there's any updates I find for you, I will post them. There's also a movie called Haunting Velisca that's loosely based on the murders, but really it just uses the house as a base story for what boils down to a modern-day slasher. Which, I mean, guys, come on. It's way more interesting to hear or at least see in a movie form the actual murders rather than whatever you make off of it, you know? Well, that's just my opinion. Now, if you are like the townspeople of Velisca in 1912 and you would like to tour the house, or if you'd like to stay overnight, you can. So for $428, you and a group of up to six people can stay overnight in the murder house. If that's not your thing, they also run tours through the house every October. The site you can book this on, should you want to, is uh, VilliscaIowa.com. That's Villisca with two L's and a C. You'll see the spelling in the site description, or in the episode description. And they do rent overnights and rent tours, but they also make sure to say that they don't celebrate the crime necessarily, but they do recognize that it's interesting to people for historical reasons and also just interest, I guess, just morbid curiosity. And let's try not to forget on that note, even though over a hundred years have passed that the census family was murdered, they loved each other. They loved their children. They had lives prior to being murdered. They probably had a great time that night, staying up and playing and celebrating the onset of summer. They had no clue that death was just waiting for them in the attic next to their dad's bed. And that is the story of the Velisca Axe Murders. And the sites I used for reference are iowacoldcases.org, velisca.iowa.com, and lizzieandrewborden.com, which has a lot of interesting stories, but um, I definitely referenced them for this one. So if you haven't already, remember to follow me. I am at Historical Paranormal on Instagram. I am not on Facebook, although several people have told me I should be. I might create one. We'll see. Um, I'm working on putting my episodes on YouTube as well, but video editing has never been a strong point of mine, so I'm going to work on that, Um, and I'll get back to you. I'll let you know when we have um, our episodes up and running on YouTube, and if y'all, of course, I'm going to have my, not weekly because I haven't been around in three weeks, but I am going to have my episodic plea for ratings and reviews. Love the reviews too. Both of them are really nice, but if you can take your time out to do that, I would really appreciate it. Also, of course, you know, if they're good, that'd be great too. (laughs) If they're not, you know, I can always learn from your opinions. So y'all have a great week. If I don't um, have an episode come out next week, then have a happy Christmas and I will see you the week after that. 